You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. So now what? Well, you can join me, Pastor Allen, and my colleague, Pastor Carissa, as we explore the spaces between the Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to Soft Idolatry! <laughs> How, Halloween's over, Carissa, and you don't have quite the baritone or bass to, to do the spooky intro. Oh man, I was finally starting to get into the Halloween spirit, and now it's over. <laughs> that that That's okay, you can skip over Thanksgiving and Advent and jump right into the Christmas spirit. Well, that's surely what everyone else is doing. Don't get me started on that one. I just called you Shirley again. Ah, I caught it before you did. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you called yourself Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's nice to, like, you know, go by a pseudonym every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Soft Idolatry. We are here in Season 1, Episode 16 today, and we have some fun news. Would you like to share that, Alan? Yeah, so uh, I have recently taken some time away from my congregation. Actually, a couple of times in the last few weeks, I took some vacation, I took some study leave, and yet I did not take time away from the podcast. And I think Carissa has been in similar situations. So we've decided that probably sometime in the new year, we are going to be looping some other friends of ours into this process, and uh, you will possibly be hearing some other voices on soft idolatry in large part so that Carissa and I can actually take time off when we are taking time off from our paid work. That's right. That's right. So what we'll do is we'll be bringing some of them into the conversation with the two of us in the, the months ahead, and then Uh, At some point when we are away, then we will be bringing them in to help host uh, the podcast themselves. Although, um, interestingly, the next trip that I have planned, one of the colleagues that we're planning on looping into the podcast is actually going to be on the same trip with me. So there'll be a different voice coming in on that one uh, for a week or two. Okay. Well, we'll we'll figure out if if you guys can... uh broadcast remotely from wherever else in the world you're going to be. You're going to be in Latin America, right? Yes. Yeah, we'll be in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And that might actually be kind of fun, uh, but our sound quality is not going to be good because there ain't no way I'm hauling my entire podcasting setup all the way to (laughs) Central America. I travel super light. Wuss. Uh, No, I'm not a wuss. I think the wusses are the people that are overpacking everything from their house. (laughs) Actually, I do agree with you on that. I've I've had to lug people's gear on uh, international trips as well and including in La Paz, Bolivia uh, here, you know, watching somebody faint after lugging a suitcase that was almost as big as me at, uh, you know 10, 11,000 feet of elevation (laughs) so no. (laughs) Yeah, I did three weeks in the Middle East with one carry-on bag and a backpack. I did a month in Africa with two carry-on bags and a backpack, but to my credit, one of those was entirely full of food because of all of my medical and food issues. Oh my, I'm glad I do not have food allergies. Yeah, it really makes traveling a pain in the butt, but I'm a seven, so I'm going to travel anyway. Damn it, I'll figure (laughs) out a way. 
Hey, so... Uh, so for those of you who aren't into the Enneagram, Carissa <laughs> is is describing her Enneagram number. Um, I, I'm I'm sort of in the camp that says that Enneagram is astrology for people with graduate degrees. But you know, if 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 it works for you, run with it. Okay. Well, you clearly don't have enough graduate degrees, buddy. So <laughs> try harder. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, so Veterans Day is coming up on Monday. I know people are getting ready. In fact, Veterans Day is the day that this episode will uh, hit the airwaves. And I'm curious, how do you deal with Veterans Day in your congregation? Well, it's a it's a new congregation. Uh, so my uh, lay leader that morning, uh, th- this coming Sunday, will be a Navy vet and I think I'm just going to let him make an announcement uh, that the next day is Veterans Day and to ask any of the veterans to stand up and be recognized. But at least from my liturgical sensibilities, this will happen during announcements before worship has started. Yeah, I think that is an appropriate place for it, not because it's not important to recognize the service of others, whatever that service might be. But because Veterans Day is not a liturgical holiday, it is a civic holiday, and we need to be careful to um, separate those two things. Yes, not to mix the the sacred and the secular in that way so that we do not confuse our worship. Uh, I, I will also probably add something into the prayers of the people with a prayer of thanksgiving for all those who serve the larger community including veterans and first responders. Yeah, and that's generally how I handle it as well. If there is a Veterans Day observation happening in our town, I will maybe put that in the announcements that, hey, there's this Mm -hmm. Veterans Day observation happening, same for Memorial Day, and then um, add something to the prayers of the people. Mm -hmm. Very good. So have you a sermon title for Sunday? I do. I am titling my sermon, Then, Now, Later, and Soon. Okay. I have not yet landed on a sermon title, so I need to do that before I leave the office today at about 11.45 in the morning, and uh, I'm working on it. All right. Well, I'll be interested to hear how that shapes up. (laughs) So what's, uh, what's going on in the world? What is going on in the world indeed? Well, if we're looking at the scripture passages we're going to be reading soon here, I think one of one thing that's happening in the world that's important for us to think about is um, the church's struggle to fit in these days. Yeah, and, and not, not just fit in, but find its identity in the community, in the world. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of wrestling with churches declining in numbers and trying to figure out how they hold on to buildings and pastors at the same time. And spoiler alert, they usually decide to hold on to the building rather than the pastor. I don't know that that's a spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's a surprise for a lot of folks, but you're right. Yeah. They'd rather have a building than a pastor for most congregations. I think it's a surprise for people in larger congregations to hear that to hear the choice put in those terms that's fair yeah 
Um, it's not that people are consciously saying, well, we can have a building or a pastor. Let's keep the building. I think that getting rid of the building to be able to have a more full-time pastor just doesn't, it's not even on the radar. Right. And I think part of, part of the picture that we inhabit right now is congregations that have made that decision not really having the decision couched in those terms. Yeah. Um, and along with that, there's a lot of things that we're really, really stuck on, we being church, uh, universal, um, uh, Catholic church, not big C Catholic, but little C Catholic. That's a word that also means just universal church. So if you hear the Apostles' Creed in a Protestant church and you hear the term Catholic church, it's talking little C Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but universal. One holy and Catholic and apostolic church. Right, right. Um, but when I say we, um, that's what I mean. Uh, we struggle with these anchors that you know anchors are a good thing in the right times and places but when you need to go somewhere anchors just hold you in place buildings are one of those anchors another one of those is worship time mm-hmm. have you ever tried to change the time of sunday morning worship i have not when my two churches began partnering um, people threatened to leave because they had to change the time of worship. They didn't even, it wasn't the day. It wasn't the piece of the day. It was still Sunday morning, but because it was moving um, for one church a half hour earlier for the other a half hour later, people actually threatened to leave over that. Did any of them follow through on that threat? They did not. This is good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but it some is, have it, since left for other reasons but that's a sure, whole other can of worms sure and but it's indicative of how we hold on to these little things that have everything to do with our own personal preferences and uh our our own ideas of the way things are or ought to be that really don't have any grounding in scripture in God's call to us to love God and love neighbor or in Jesus call to follow him. Yeah. Uh, what are some of those anchors you've seen in your experience? Well, I would, I would say buildings without a doubt. Um, you know, having done a whole lot of pulpit supply between the time that I graduated seminary and got my first call to ministry, I could see a lot of those congregations who valued building more than other things. Uh, I would also say memorial funds are a Oof. big anchor. Yeah, <laughs> they are. For, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, oftentimes um, congregations have money that was left to them in trust from a beloved member who passed away and said, I would like this money to be put in a fund that earns interest and the interest is used for X, Y, or Z purpose. And all of that is well and good in good times when you are not struggling to keep the, to to fix a leaky roof or to fix an organ that isn't working completely right or- Or at all. Or at all. (laughs) uh, or, Or to make payroll in the midst of all that. And 
you know, all of there are going to be people in the congregation who remember the person who gave that donation and will cry bloody murder if the session uh, decides to touch that to pay for operating expenses. And I, I think part of it is that when those funds were donated, nobody ever envisioned a time when we could need we could have greater needs. Uh, so for instance, we have a camp fund to provide scholarship money for kids to go to uh, summer camp and to, to go to Christian summer camps. And it's a lovely thing. And, you know, maybe we get 800 bucks in interest a year off of that fund. But if we liquidated the fund, there would be $8,000 that we had to mm -hmm. cover some large expense. Now, if we liquidated that fund, I can predict exactly who would raise the alarm. And uh, then you have to start asking, okay, do we need the $8,000 so much that we take on that internal conflict? Right. But the the people will fight to the death for a few thousand dollars in this fund or a few thousand dollars in that fund yeah um there are this is not the case for my congregations but there are congregations out there that have like literally millions of dollars in endowments or memorial funds and like 20 people in worship yeah, I, I I met somebody at a at a training once who served as the associate pastor at a church in I think it was Rochester, New York, and they had a full time senior pastor, a full time associate pastor, and thirty people in worship. That's and it was, nuts. That is nuts, and that was all because they had endowment money uh -huh. that could pay for those salaries and. Uh, and this young woman referred to it as zombie church. Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's what it is. It's um, enabling them to live into their nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And if we haven't said this already, nostalgia is deadly. And I think this is a perfect lead in to our texts for this Sunday. I think that you are correct. Yes. Um so when we were planning earlier this week, we looked at the texts for this week, and one of them is from Haggai, which is a book of the Bible that most of you probably almost never read, if ever. But it's really short, so including take us. a look sometime. <laughs> it is very short, and it only comes up in the lectionary like once. Mm -hmm. um, so it's one of those, you kind of want to jump on the chance to use it when it does come up in the lectionary. On the other hand, you only use this passage if you you hate your lay reader. Um, <laughs> so Marty, if you're listening, I am so sorry. I actually did choose to use this passage. Um, we'll spend five minutes coaching uh, before, <laughs> before church if, if you need to. Our Old Testament passage is Haggai 1.15 through 2.9. I'm actually not sure why they add 1.15 into here other than for historical Grounding. Just a little so, side note here. So if, if you look at it, it says 115B, B. which starts after the period in the second year of King Darius. Yeah, it's still a little odd. Anyway, 
So I um, would just start with in the second year of King Darius. Because <laughs> right. that's so what the lectionary website says. We're going to go with 115B then, ladies and gentlemen. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. Our next reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, then continuing with verses 13 through 17. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose he called you through our proclamation of the good news, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good word, every good work and word. Alan, are you using the Luke passage this week or the psalm? I'm using the Luke. Okay. Um, I'm actually using the psalm. I'm taking a page out of Caroline Lewis's book this week, uh-huh. and I'm using it liturgically of course. for our call to worship, um, Psalm 145. Uh-huh. Um, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will play, pray, bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Um, so I'm using that one liturgically, but I'm not using the Luke passage this week. Would you uh, 
Yes, uh, I'm, I am actually using Psalm 98 for my call to worship. Oh, okay. Which was one of the other songs. So yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, I am using the Luke, uh, which uh, once you hear it, you will understand why both of us are more than a little reluctant to charge headlong into something like this text well and i get to tackle this one in a week or two at bible study anyway so i'm just gonna <laughs> save this one for bible study and not yeah, even go near it in a sermon that's, that's so much easier yeah. um but i but as we record this i still haven't figured out how i'm going to use it but here goes some sadducees those who say there is no resurrection came to jesus and asked him a question teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died childless, and then the second and then the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore, because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So yeah, why, why why wouldn't you want to take on a on a passage about leveret marriage? Leveret marriage. I mean, there's so much going on here, right? So we've got the uh, leveret marriage is this uh, idea and this part of the law that was set forth to help protect childless widows. Um, and so, if you hear terms like kinsman redeemer, things like that, that that kind of goes along these lines, where um, the provision was if a man died and left his wife with no children to care for her, specifically no sons, um, then his brother or closest male relative was to then marry her as a, as a way of protecting her socially. Assuming that that brother had not already married and had children and whatnot. Right. Correct. Yeah. So the closest unmarried male relative. Um, so, but this is a particularly extreme example, and the Sadducees are purposely being ridiculous here, just to try to like. They're trying look. to trap. Yeah, they're trying to trap Jesus and to get him to say something that is theologically unsound, so that they can accuse him of heresy and be done with him. Right. Yeah, and and it never works out for them when they try to do that. Not ever. No, it doesn't. Um, but. Boy, this is, I, I, I have, as we record this, I have not planned a sermon railing against memorial funds, but again, this would be a perfect text for that. 
you know, th this is what we're looking at is a misapplication of the tradition. Um, right. We are looking at people splitting hairs over something. And again, splitting hairs over trying to trap Jesus into a particular interpretation. And they're not looking at the world around them. They're not yeah. looking at perhaps greater need. And, and at this point, I'm starting to travel a little too far afield from this text. But I think this is the common theme that we have in all of our readings is they are a reminder that too often we focus on the wrong things. We focus on the way things used to be or the way we used to interpret things. And we often forget that those interpretations are as much about us as the texts that we are interpreting. Yeah. And they're completely missing the point of why that law was put into place for starters. And um, they're, they're missing the point that um, we won't need laws like that later. You know, Jesus is not talking about resurrection to give us some sort of like metaphysics lesson here, right? It's no, nor nor a science lesson explaining the resurrection. Uh, it, it's worth pointing out that this is at that time probably a new discussion within Judaism. When you go back prior to, uh, certainly prior to the exile in the uh, early 6th century BCE, there really is not a defined, recorded belief in an afterlife. This is the time of year from All Saints to the end of November-ish. Uh, so basically November. This is the time of year where there are a lot of passages in the lectionary about resurrection and end times and heaven and, and all of that stuff uh, because we're building to the end of the liturgical year. So a lot of people know when the Jewish New Year is and tell their Jewish friends Happy New Year, but very few people say anything about the Christian New Year. Have you ever noticed that? Like we've got the secular New Year, Jewish New Year, Chinese New Year, but we don't talk about Christian New Year. Yes, I have in fact noticed that. And I think I may have even um, put that in the sermon at the beginning of Advent. I, the first Sunday of Advent every year, I, at the beginning of the greetings, welcome everybody by saying Happy New Year, because mm -hmm. Advent is the beginning of the Christian year. And I just, I love owning that, right? And mm -hmm. Christ the King Sunday is the Sunday before that. And that is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. So we're building up to that very end, which is kind of like this explosion of Jesus is Lord. He's reigning on the throne. He's over all. Everything is going to be fixed and renewed. And then we jump from that smack into the quiet waiting of Advent. And I yeah. love that setup. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you've used a word, um, and, and I think this is going to certainly pop into our analysis of the second Thessalonians reading, you've used a word end. Yes. And I think that a lot of our 
uh, a lot of our members, especially those who are baby boomer age and older, are concerned about the end of the church or just mm-hmm. end times in general. And certainly we see this in Thessalonians. Yes. In fact, the Thessalonians, the church that Paul is writing to, is convinced that they are in the end of times. And like Jesus is coming back today or tomorrow for sure. You know, how? what do we do about this? Paul is kind of reining them in going, guys, not what we're talking about here. No, the 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 word that is translated as end in a lot of places the greek word that is translated in english as end is telos and yes it does mean end but it means end in the sense of goal it is something that we are working toward so the end of the present age and the beginning of the kingdom of god is the goal toward which we are working but it is not this thing of um, extra biblical mythology about the end times or um, about the rapture or or all of these things that come out of our culture and not out of the Bible. Um, So we are really talking about telos and again, the end of the liturgical calendar the telos, the goal, is the proclamation of Jesus as Lord of all. And that's where where and why our liturgical calendar ends on Christ the King Sunday. Yes, yes. The author of, the, of Thessalonians is not telling them how to deal with the doom and gloom and the apocalypse and all of the end of times. He's telling them, guys dial it back, slow down, focus on the right time. I think it's interesting that in our passage from Haggai, the folks are focused on what was Mm -hmm. and how what is now is not what was. Whereas the Thessalonians and even the, the Sadducees in this Luke passage are focused on the end of time's end, but none of them are focused on the actual goal at hand. Right. And they are all missing the point in various ways. Uh, I think some of the historical context of Haggai is worth pointing out. This is probably about the year 530 BCE, uh, give or take. The, um, in, in 50, 60 years prior to this, uh, the Babylonians came three different times and invaded Jerusalem and took captives back to Babylon. They took the, the Jewish elites, the royal family, the courtiers, and the high priests, and the religious leaders, all got exiled to Babylon. So there might have been a handful of people, certainly the text suggests that there were a handful of people who were taken as children probably in... Help me if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I think 583 BCE was the last, uh, or maybe it was 587, was the last of the waves of captives taken to Babylon. We're going to need to get a fact checker to sit in on our yes. <laughs> recording sessions and grab us on that. 
at, at any event, um, it is one of those two years. So it's possible that someone who was taken into captivity as a child could have seen the old temple that that, that is Solomon's temple from uh, from antiquity that was then destroyed by the Babylonians in that last conquest. Now, what happens in the meantime is that Jerusalem is mostly abandoned and uh, people, there, there is not a temple for proper worship. There is not a class of priests to define proper worship. So the people who remain in in the land, you know, figure out ways to get by without their former rulers. And the exiles, when they return from Babylon, are expecting to be greeted with open arms, with flowers and parades and all sorts of earthly glories, when in fact they are greeted with indifference. And they don't know what to do with all of this. They don't understand why the people aren't thrilled that their that their natural leaders are back. <laughs> yeah. So there, there is a great deal of uh, a great deal of conflict between the people who remained and the people who returned, and eventually they decide they need to rebuild the temple, and King Darius of Persia lets them do this and even in the midst of all this there are people in the congregation in the exile congregation who are complaining that the other people are not doing it right yeah and if yeah. that doesn't sound like what <laughs> like the way we do church today i don't know what does yeah it it's funny that Often books like Haggai get written off because they're hard to understand without knowing the historical context. But once once you know the historical context, they are so, so relevant to what yes. is happening in the church today that we mm -hmm. cannot ignore the prophets, not even the minor prophets. We cannot ignore them. Correct. And, and this this is one of those that Yes, there are some words that are hard to pronounce and people don't know the history, but boy, this story just leaps off the page it'll once you know the background. Yes, yeah, it it'll will, preach. It will um, definitely preach. You ready for a weird analogy? Shoot. Okay. So I don't like Halloween, as we've discussed. Mm -hmm. I don't like scary movies, as we've discussed, except mm -hmm. for zombies. I don't know why. You like zombie movies. I love zombie movies. I do not know why. Um, and like The Walking Dead, I'm totally up to date on it. I just like, I don't know what it is about zombies. It could be scary zombie movies, bad zombie movies, funny ones. Shaun of the Dead is probably my favorite zombie movie. Um, there's something about, for me, the existential struggle in zombie movies. It's like different than it is with other monsters mm -hmm. you've got like this post-apocalyptic struggle between life and death and it's this constant um trying to rebuild trying to um create um and sometimes that's trying to rebuild what was sometimes that's trying to rebuild something new and 
you know, sometimes there's like a self-sacrifice to save others. There's just like, there's so much great social commentary that happens in zombie movies. Um, even in funny ones like Shaun of the Dead, great social commentary there too, right? And as the church, we can decide whether we want to continue trying to rebuild exactly what we had before and let the zombies overrun us, or if we want to just give up and be zombies. Uh, like you mentioned before, zombie church, that's what got me going on this. Or do we want to try to create something new out of the rubble? Right. And I think that's one of those uh, one of those areas where we forget the Christian story. We are so so afraid of the church dying as an institution that we forget that our beliefs are grounded not in death, but in resurrection. Yeah. That, that Jesus was reborn and Jesus reaches more people as the resurrected Christ than he ever reached as the living Christ. But we don't want to hear that because we remember a time and a place when the church, the church universal, had much more influence, had much more social cachet, and just occupied a more prominent place in people's lives, in the culture, in society, etc. So we would rather settle for nostalgia about our past than honest regrowth and rebirth. Yeah. Nostalgia is a way to avoid the hard work of healing and reconciliation. And I think this is emblematic of a whole lot of conflict in our society today. Um, by, by the way, the divisions that we see in the society in Judah in the text from Haggai those divisions continued all the way into Jesus' time. Mm -hmm. And the people who were contesting these various issues 500 years before Jesus came into the world, those fault lines were still there, and they were still there after Jesus' death and resurrection, and it never got healed. And when I look at our current political climate, uh, all of the rifts in our society now, I see divisions that have been there for a long time that have never been healed. Well, I mean, I still hear a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment. Really? In my, yeah. In uh, Western Pennsylvania, that is still a real thing. Okay. I, I certainly, I hear... Talk about an old beef. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I heard... I have served in congregations that thought that having communion once a month was still too close to Catholic. That's so but, ironic. Yes, it is. Uh, but that's not necessarily, um, I, I wouldn't name that anti-Catholic bias. I would just say that that's sort of a cultural artifact that, again, has no particular 
scriptural justification, but the people have sort of uh, made an icon out of a particular interpretation and practice. So, yeah, I don't hear much. I have heard some. Uh, the second you hear someone say something about the Catholics, you know they're about to say yeah. something <laughs> offensive. Yes, um, or, or, or at least dumb. Right, or uninformed at the best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I do hear a fair amount of like dogpiling on Catholic theology specifically as mm. being like wrong, mm -hmm. um, you know, so... I think that that is that is interesting that we're and that I mean, I think that maybe is resurging because we do have this division of if you don't agree with me, yeah. I'm going to beat you into the ground with my ideas. Right. And, and I would, you know, I I would call that idolatry of the self um, that we have enthroned our own interpretations and made idols of them and. Uh, we can find just enough evidence to back up our idols so that we don't realize they're idols. And one of those idols in the church and in our society writ large is the past. We have this nostalgia for a past that was broken, but we don't see the brokenness when we look at the past. We only see the parts of it that we like. Right. And we want to keep that, so we fight old battles instead of learning from and listening to one another yeah and, and in the process we're not listening to the jesus who says follow me right right and it's important to name the fact that we're we're not saying you can't grieve what was or what is no more in fact it's really important to name that grief Right. There's there's grief that goes along with seasonal changes in life. Um, a great example, um, my kids are getting older. My youngest is 11. Two of my kids are out of the house and on their own. Uh, we're on the second dog of our marriage now. It occurred to me the other day. I was like, wow, that feels like a marital milestone. That like we're on our second dog, second right? Second dog in your marriage. And, That's great. Uh, yeah, but that, so it's a it's a new season that we're entering into, and it's a good season, and it's a different season. Our kids do a lot more without us now. Even the younger two that are still at home have lives apart from us that we know very little about. Right? It's a weird time in our lives. Um, and there is some grief that goes along with that. We go back and see old photos of when they were little and we forget what a pain in the ass they were when they couldn't go to the bathroom by themselves and they couldn't get a snack by themselves and they weren't at school yet. So they were always glued to us. And all we see is the adorable chubby little toddler faces, right? Mm. It's okay. It is okay to mourn the past. It's okay to grieve for what is no more. It's okay to feel that bittersweet tinge of sadness, even when you're entering into a new and sweet season. The, the, the challenge, the caution is not to let the nostalgia overwhelm you. It's not to worship the past and to do everything you can to push the world back into a way that it once was. Right. You don't want to force your kids back into diapers. <laughs> no, you don't want to force your kids back into diapers. Um, j just in the same way, if we have this expectation that 
church is going to be like it was 30 or 40 years ago with two to 300 people in the pews for one service on Sunday and a congregation of four or five or 600 members where, among other things, we always have enough money for all of our little projects and programs. Right. It just ain't so. Yes, there are some congregations that still have that, but those congregations that have 600 members used to have a thousand members. Mm -hmm. And Yes, there are some evangelical churches that are enormous, but the wave is breaking there too. So what we need to do is get the moat out of our own eye. In this case, the moat is nostalgia and look at the world around us and engage. And I'm not saying that our churches don't do this at all, but when the focus is on the past, it is not enough on the present. Yeah. Well, that's a hard, that's a hard balance. And it's okay to say that there's things that we're afraid of too, things we don't understand about that new, um, the new thing that we are moving into. But yeah, we can't, we just cannot get stuck in what used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of great examples out there now of churches doing things exceptionally differently selling their buildings to build affordable housing for their neighborhood or i read about one that their services are also 12-step meetings so Mm. going to church counts as going to a 12-step meeting and they say you don't have to be a recovering addict to be here we're all recovering from something that's interesting and I i would be really curious to see the liturgy on that and how it's put together I know, right? Like the liturgical nerd in me is like, how does that work? It's amazing. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of of new and interesting things happening out there that don't look the way that church has looked. They're very different, but they should be and they must be. And ultimately, I think we judge the success or... Um, the effectiveness of this in how we are able to bring people together. Are we able to establish and build new relationships? Are we able to cultivate a garden of relationship that includes all of the old vines with new vines so that we continue to grow and branch out? Right. The, the community, whatever your congregation or church looks like, the community is not about the tradition. The community is the community. And if the community is dying, the tradition has to go. Um, we, we have to make time for what's important. Um, unless you have any other final thoughts to, to dump in here, Alan, how about I pray and you offer a blessing? That sounds fantastic. Pray right. us out, Carissa. Absolutely. Almighty God, we thank you for examples of creative community life. We thank you for those that are in scripture. We thank you for those that are in the churches around us, in the congregations around us. We ask that you would help us to focus on the goal, to focus on your work, not on some point in time. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move powerfully in each and every one of our communities 
We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now, may God, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body. May God encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Soft Idolatry, friends. Remember that you can email us questions, comments, and more at info at softidolatry.com. And if you'd like links for Facebook, Patreon, uh, financial support, show notes, and more, you can join us at our website, www.softidolatry.com. Uh, hey, Alan, quick yes. question for you before we go. If a child refuses to sleep during nap time, are they guilty of resisting arrest? I'm not going to dignify that. <laughs> <laughs>